Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with your co-host, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, and his wife, Jeannie. Michael and Jeannie share with you the wisdom of the ancient Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. They offer tools and support five days a week. They will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love. In Aramaic, Rachma. Michael is the author of Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.whyagain.com. And now your co-host, The Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. To the brightness within you and the truth that is rooted within me. Happy Wednesday. Today is November 25th, 2015. I'm Michelle Touche, filling in for Jeannie, and I'm here today with Dr. Michael Rice and Dr. Timothy Hayes. We warmly welcome you to the show, and thank you for choosing to be with us. Our call-in number is 646-200-4169. We encourage you to call in with your comments or questions, allowing you to practice and strengthen your skills. So press one, and that will put you into queue to talk with Michael. So let's say hi, Michael, in support of developing our inner process of Aramaic forgiveness. Well, thank you, young lady, once more for being available to handle the switchboard and uh, for your general support of the work of forgiveness on the planet. It is much appreciated from every perspective. We've been out uh, once again running errands to get our house into uh, final shape, and we're getting close. And I understand you're in New York City. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Well, um, I decided uh, yesterday afternoon my son um, and I should take a trip out to New York. And it's he's 20 years old. He's a junior at U of M. He's all A's, aerospace engineering and varsity cross country, the top athlete. Actually, uh, University of Michigan won a uh, Big Ten championship um, with his team and his efforts. So, as a little reward and nice um, getaway, we're going to take a couple days here in New York City. And Yo. Oh, uh, Aaron, no, say, say, be more respectful to Michael. Say hi. Hi, Michael. It's Michael. Good to hear your voice. Good luck in the race. Sounds awesome. Sounds like an awesome <laughs> trip. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. We were in Chicago for, like, the weekend. It was really it was really nice. Cool city. We're in New York well, now. Pretty, yeah, now I'm in New York for the first time. That's uh it's even cooler. I'm actually about to leave and go walk around and check out stuff. You don't want to stay at the show and so, work Enjoy the the hour, the show or whatever. Mind shifter radio, right? Uh-huh. Bye. Bye. Remember he was remember you sat in the front row like Grand Rapids last Pretty cool that you make the space to uh, to be with your kids the way you are. That's that's awesome. Congratulations. Oh. It, well, we're also making you um, get you know five hours, ten hours of straight one one mommy young adult time. 
the only way I can do it is if I contain them away from the devices. I hear you. It's pretty sweet. Pretty sweet that you're uh, you're willing to make a space. You know, that's uh, in uh, in all that you you do. That busyness not being your drug, you you make the space and and uh, and take that time. That's pretty fabulous. And that you have two star runners the way you do in the family. That's also pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're gifted gifted children. Sweet, sweet. Well, and uh, when we get gifted with children, it's always pretty awesome. They are uh, are so amazing in uh, what they do. And then the next treat will be when the grandbabies start coming. We've got uh, one that we spend quite a bit of time with in St. Louis, Krista's daughter. And uh, Jeannie just got to spend some time with her, her stepson's uh, uh, two children so they're uh, they're also a pretty awesome gift and of course they uh they constitute one of the major reasons for doing the work of forgiveness and that is that when we choose to engage in this process that we're working with it is the opening of a space or the healing of generational dynamics that makes for such a gift. And, you know, the things that we're willing to face and deal with in our own lives uh, opens the energy window for our children to have an easier job of working through those things and, uh, and really truly maintaining the truth of who they are as human beings, as this awesome presence of love. And when you look at the history that most of us have of relationships with parents that uh, have, are, are so fraught with every form of hostility and fear that can be imagined for so many. And, and I think of even there are a couple of families that I know that you know mom and dad are like the ideal moms and dads, and yet in working with the children, the impact of those moments of rage. I remember working with one gentleman and he said, well, you know, my dad will only go off the deep end three or four times a year. So he was a pretty cool dad. It's like, well, you know, every child deserves the opportunity. It's a birthright actually to live with parents who are incapable of hostility and fear. And of course, the world's been pretty far removed from that. So rare is the person who can do that with their children, and I, I sadly proclaim myself in that same category. And when I look around at how many people in just one generation, we were talking with someone uh, the other day who uh, whose childhood was pretty crazy, parents divorced, uh, a lot of rage, military background, uh, catching the this mom, this young lady who's now a mom with her boyfriend in the house by dad and at 14 throwing her out on the street and her having to go live with friends to finish high school and uh, and she sent us a, a note of uh, uh, a school note that was uh, being done around Thanksgiving and uh, just this beautiful dissertation by a child of six on 
And the bottom line of it was that, you know, I know I have parents who just love me from the deepest parts of their hearts. You know, a six-year-old writing that. It's just so cool that uh, in one generation, and we you know, sent this young lady an acknowledgement, I've noticed how in just one generation the change you've made from a world of some pretty deep insanity to one where the child is just nurtured and, and totally surrounded in light and love and uh, a parent who has chosen to work through the hostilities and fears and or when those hostilities and fears come up can own it, can communicate with the child and create the space for healing. It's just, you know, it's it's the most amazing thing to open that level of communication. So congratulations in doing that. Of course, for everyone who's with us, we're coming up on that uh, holy day of uh, Thanksgiving and appreciation. And that'll be our, our conversation on Thursday. We'll be talking about Thanksgiving and some different perspectives on Thanksgiving, uh, appreciation and gratitude. We're going to talk about negative gratitude as well as positive gratitude. So we'll add a couple of twists there that will open the space. And then on Monday, we're going to be doing a, a little different show. We're going to be inviting anyone and everyone who's been involved in the 12-step program to uh, to talk about holidays and the things that people go through in holidays and how uh, the 12 steps can be an assistance and how it correlates with this work and just creating a, a process space for people you know, coming out of Thanksgiving, coming out of the holidays and into, uh, or in, out of that holiday into Christmas and uh, and New Year's and, you know, creating a space of support for those who um, sadly often dread those holidays. You know, it's pretty crazy, but this is the time of year when suicides peak. And it, I think in many cases it's over the family dynamics that just seem unresolvable and I lament that there are so many millions upon millions of people in the world who have no idea that there are tools with which to work through these things. It's just, you know, to to create the safety for rage and guilt and fear and sadness to come forward, to create a space of such a powerful presence of love, and to actually have the tools to go to the part of the mind that holds those energies and clean them out. And and so many people just live where they have no idea that that's even conceivable, let alone can it actually be done. And what we know is that as surely as night follows day, anyone who chooses to actually pick up these tools that come from the first century Aramaic language and put them to work in their lives will find themselves progressing toward a deeper and deeper space of healing and wholeness and peace and wisdom and just really sweet presence of love in their relationships. And, you know, it's a, it's a powerful time of year because for most people or for many people, just the thought of, oh, my God, I have to go into that environment where, you know, dad's going to be drinking or mom's going to be doing her, you know, sleeping pills and, you know, on and on and on and all the dynamics. And 
for people to actually hear from people now who used to dread like that and now are excited about getting to go home and deal with those things once more on another level from within themselves and model for their family systems that those changes are actually possible. And we see such a, a, a depth of change that occurs when people are willing to take the tools and do their work. And it's just like, you know, shoveling the, uh, the garbage uh, rocks out of a garden and uh, replacing it with uh, with good soil. It's a, it's a pretty awesome experience and a pretty awesome opportunity. And the safety of digging up the seeds of discontent, of sadness, of fear, of rage, of guilt, of hatred, of vengeance, and uh, being able to uh, to shift into holding a space. Uh, as I've been sharing, you know, with Jeannie and I, we've, we've at Heartland all summer kind of, you know, uh, got behind in, in watching movies. So each day we've been starting early in the morning and uh, and then quitting a little early and, and going and catching a movie. And uh, last night I uh, had the opportunity to see a very, very powerful film uh, called 33. And it's about 33 men who uh, were trapped in a mine and they were in this mine in Chile for 69 days. And I was shocked by the statistic that 1,200 people a year die in mining accidents in the world. But these 33 men uh, were, by virtually everyone, the experts and everyone else, were they just gave up on them. You know, by the, the first couple of days, the, the mine owners did absolutely nothing. They just said, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll close the mine down and we'll put a monument there to these 33 lives that were lost. And uh, as it turns out, it's kind of interesting and apparently based on a true story, one young man who's a government representative said, you know, we're going to take over a rescue. And one of the most powerful things about the film was the power of one person holding a space. When everybody else gave up, you know, day 10, day 12, day 14, they knew there was only three days of water and food in the mine. And these guys are 2,000 feet down, 20 stories down in the earth. And, you know, day 8, day 9, day 10, you know, the conversation by the experts, the people operating the drilling machines, the engineers are... You know, it took them 100 years to dig down to that level to get the mine to the point where they could get to that depth. And these guys are probably already dead. We might as well give it up. And in fact, at one point they do. But one young man, inspired by the presence of love, says, no, we're going to go on. We're going to go forward. And it, it kind of reminded me of the whole process of each person that chooses to hold the space for healing a family system where everybody's given up, healing in a culture, in a world where everybody's given up. And uh, I'd, I'd invite you with those brain cells firing to go and see 33 and choose to be that one person that holds the space, that those who are 2,000 feet down in the trapped in the, the, the minefield of hate, of fear, of vengeance, of rage, of guilt, and holding the space that, yes, we can do something about it. One person is all it takes. 
So we invite you to choose to be that one person in your world, in your family culture, in your community. And then when the going gets tough, instead of running off in another direction, quitting, giving up, then and, and this film demonstrates very powerfully, instead of giving up, it's go back and do it at another level. Take a new approach. Take a new avenue toward the rescue and watch what happens. So, so it's a, a powerful and very inspiring film. And there's one line in the film that I thought was pretty cool and this, uh, this uh, one Bolivian man has kind of an outcast. He's he's gone down the line for the first time in his life, and he is feeling very outcast. and And uh, he talks to uh, one other gentleman about you know how hated he is, and the other guy says, "Oh, hate is just something for children." And that's about it. Those with an immature mind who have no idea how to go beyond the generational patterns and touch into the truth of who they are, function out of things like rage and hate and complaint and negativity. And it is the the truth of the human being. If you hold the newborn child, you know exactly what a human life is. And the truth of that newborn being is that we are all, the presence of love and even if we've lost ourselves in the power person dynamics of a thousand generations that can be reversed that can be undone and so that's what we're here to support in the world and we're honored and delighted that you're here to want to share this conversation with us dr tim anything to share with us today what's exciting in your world well i am here and um I share with you that goal of spreading the idea, first teaching people what it's like to hold the space of love for somebody and then holding the goal to spread that to more and more minds because it, from my personal experience, is one of the most practical ways to move through life and resolve difficulties that I've ever encountered with all my years of training. So. I hold that as a goal with you, and I enjoy the practice of it. We had our Tuesday night support group last night, and I took a a big leap of sorts and played for the Tuesday night group an entire hour-long talk by Guy Finley from earlier this year at his talk in the Pines, where he gets quite animated and yells a lot and it's a very different kind of a presentation than what we normally do watching your videos. So I gave a little preface and I said that we're going to ask you to try and listen with the ears of noticing the similarities in the core of the message and um, notice and appreciate the differences in the presenters at the same time you're looking for the overlap and the similarity and sometimes the exact matching of the core message. And then because it was so animated and some of his statements on first glance seemed so outrageous, I stopped the video and commented several times. So instead of just an hour, it was an hour and a half before it was over. And when I turned the video off at the end of an hour and a half, 
there were three people who gave very audible sighs. And wow. (laughs) And so then there was a ripple of laughter, and then we had a very animated discussion for the rest of the time. And near the end of uh, of the session, we were asking people to give testimonials if they've ever had a time where they had an experience of somebody and then they did some of their own work because their experience wasn't so pleasant. And they did some of their own work and then they re-engaged that person and had a completely different experience. And that exercise was prompted by how several people listening to the, the, the video with Guy Finley last night were triggered to think that he was arrogant and pompous and way too intellectual. And several other people were triggered to say, well, I didn't get that at all from Guy Finley, but I get that all the time from Michael Rice. So we used it as a teaching point to talk about how everybody was watching the same television, the same lights flickering, and hearing the same vibrations through the air, and yet everybody had a very different emotional response. And then this prompted the the testimonials, and there were at least three different people who gave a testimonial about how when they did this work or something similar, it shifted their internal dynamics so that within a day or two or within a week or two, when they encountered that person again, they had a completely different interaction and a completely different internal response. So it was a powerful session. And um, and and just lovely. And then um, this morning I was doing my own personal work. And you know, the core of the forgiveness process is that no matter how positive a goal it is that I'm holding, if I'm holding a goal and I have upset, I need to be willing to cancel that goal and ask to be shown what's really behind my upset. Because if I think I'm upset about anything that's going on outside of me or anything anybody else ever said or did, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all an inside job. And within this past week, I had a situation where I walked into my office space and someone had placed a vacuum cleaner prominently in one of my private office spaces. And I noticed as soon as I saw that, I had a strong wave of resentment and you know, urges to do passive-aggressive or overtly aggressive statements or actions about this. And I caught it right away, and I did some work on it. And here I am three days later, and I have a partner that comes and works with me in um, these energetic kind of things. It's a, almost in a to my mind's eye, a direct parallel to the worksheet process. And we nudged me a little closer to clearing it, and then I set up the goal that I had. I got more clear about the goal. And the goal that I had was to be respected and appreciated and acknowledged and to have my contributions acknowledged. So when I canceled that goal... I went in asking to be shown what part of my mind is actually creating all of this resentment. And I got an image of myself at about four years old. 
And I had to stay with this for quite a while. I mean, in terms of you know minutes of just sitting and being watching and breathing and being willing to see what would come up. And the image at four years old had to do with my father. And my father was very loving. And yet, there were certain hot-button issues that he did not tolerate well. He would get his his fear and his um, avoidance behavior would come up. And I can imagine that when I was four years old and I had this very loving, warm, you know, physical affection and verbal affection interaction with my father, if I said something about one of these issues that he would have a fear about, that it would trigger the same response that I used to see in him when I was in college. Except when I'm four years old, I probably had no no concept whatsoever of that it was all about him. And so I stayed with it and stayed with it until finally the image popped in my head and I understood the connection between what was going on at when I was four years old with my father and the person who would be doing this interaction with me as an adult today in my own office. And the connection was that the person today in the good interactions is very warm, very appreciative, and very uh, respectful of of what I do to contribute in their lives. And, and yet, when they get triggered to upset, it's just like, you know, it's the beauty and the beast. And the beast comes out, and when that happens, it resonates this discomfort and resentment and vulnerability in me. And when I canceled the goal to be respected and appreciated and acknowledged, and I saw this image of myself at four years old with my father and stayed with it long enough, I got to see both sides. My father was so warm and loving and so appreciative of me, and yet when he would get triggered, that would be gone in a flash. And he would simply put a distance between me and him. And at four years old, I would have no way to comprehend that. And it felt very threatening and that I was very vulnerable and I had a lot of resentment about it. And as soon as I made the connection of both parts of that dynamic, the appreciation and the warmth and the affection and the cold, irritated distance to what's going on today, I felt the shift. I had that that energy release in my body, and I knew instantly that th- my next interactions with this person are going to be very, very different. So that's a piece of work I was doing today. That's awesome. Very powerful. And one of the things that occurred to me as you were you were talking, you know, I was I was watching a uh, an interview by uh, someone who's really down on the whole idea of what the world calls Christianity and how insane it is and just just all kinds of stuff. What occurred to me to say is, for anybody who's listening, who's engaged in that conversation, it's it's almost like 
classic satanic way the work of the man named Yeshu has been turned backward. But we haven't said a word on the show today that is not directly related to what Yeshu was teaching 2,000 years ago. And man made religions out of it and abuse themselves and each other with it and have turned so many people off. People who are intelligent people who, if they could approach the source, you know, it's like it's like such a genius plan. If you want to get somebody away from a solution so that you can control them, you make that solution so um repulsive to their minds that there's just, you know, no way to approach it. And and so you listen to and I was this was a video that I was watching with um uh Bill Maher who's you know, a very self-proclaimed atheist, and he's talking to this Christian person. And, I mean, one of the points that um, that Bill Mart makes is, you know, how anti-intellectual um, so-called Christianity is. And and, and I, I, I wish I'd been a fly on the wall that could have jumped on the microphone and said, excuse me, Bill? Your whole conversation is about sarcasm. Tell me, where in the world where you see genuine intellectual interaction, do you find sarcasm at the root of it? And, and you, you know, the, the idea of the projection of it is just would, would just bounce off so far until he was able to build the brain cells for that. But this whole conversation that we're having is exactly what was being taught 2,000 years ago by the man named Yeshua. And if you think that can't save you from your insanity, of course, the world's turned the idea of being saved around to some some kind of a something that's, uh, that can be such a turnoff for people. But the only insanity we'll ever face is the insanity of our own lives and the generations. And as you said, the thing that actually triggered that, uh, Tim, was the uh, the scripture quote came to mind of in Romans, beware you who judge another for that in which you judge another. You have been guilty of practicing. And, and when you were talking about the, uh, the presentation that you listened to uh, in the group last night, and, and some people are like how egotistical and how, you know, la, 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 the, the descriptors. <laughs> and how they're saying, yeah, well, I hear that from Michael Rice and, and how it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all such a powerful inside job when we want to lay a uh, a judgment out on someone else. And this is the whole core and the healing of these dynamics is the whole core of what this man was teaching in, in the very real world 2,000 years ago. And that the non-being mind has removed from that place and made something about Sunday morning and something about all kinds of dogmas and doctrines as opposed to the work. And, you know, I really uh, appreciate the support groups that uh, we get to hear from that are meeting, you know, Dr. Andraki to what uh, what's happening in, uh, in Lansing and your groups and, you know, different groups around the country. And the words from the ancient teachings that would be properly applied to a mind shifter support group is liturgy. Now, liturgy became something about going to church on Sunday morning for liturgy. And, and it's become something about this thing where some guy gets up and spouts off about doctrines and dogmas and tells people about hellfire and brimstone and blah, 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 and threatens them with going to hell. 
when liturgy means our common work, people coming together to do the work of healing, exactly what this whole conversation is about. And so if you've if you've been, quote-unquote, had offense come up in you over someone who has a conversation about the work of Yeshua, start looking at the real work, and it is absolutely so awesome and life-changing that it's just beyond comprehensible. When you really start to look at it, it's so far beyond what the world treats as and teaches as some sort of a religion that's going to save us. It's just, you know, it's so powerful and so empowering. So that was one of the main things that was triggered for me, Tim, as you were as you were talking, and uh, and thanks for sharing that deep piece of work. It's pretty powerful, pretty sweet. You're very welcome. I have worked on this kind of thing for several years now, and it's nice to have that piece because this person I've been interacting with for years, and every once in a while it'll come up, and I just I keep working at it from either the resentment or vulnerability perspective, and this is the first time I saw both sides of it in the same flash, in the same picture and insight, and the energetic shift was palpable. Very sweet, very sweet. Well, we're at about uh, 26 or 27 minutes left in the show. And so uh, I'd like to just check with Michelle, see if she has anything to share. Or Michelle, uh, is there anything happening in the chat room or anybody with a hand up in the phone queue? Um, We have somebody with a hand up, and it's a Missouri area code 417. So maybe Jim. Hello. This is Jim. Is this hey, me? Jim. Yes, you're on. Uh, yes. Hey there, I, young I man. The, welcome. Uh, thank you. I missed the first just two minutes of the show, uh, so I just want to ask a question first. Has uh, I've got some information about David, and I just want to make sure I'm not being repetitious. Was anything discussed about David in the first two minutes of the show? Not at this point, but please, that was actually coming up, so go ahead. That's awesome. Okay, well, just before the show, I got a, a phone call from Julie Haverstick, and uh, Julie had gotten a communication from Susan, and uh, I have to do a disclaimer up front uh, for two reasons. Number one, my hearing has is, is got a deficit, and number two, my phone connection wasn't great, so uh, if anybody has a correction or an addendum to what I'm about to say, please, I invite you to get on the, on the call and correct what I might say in error and hopefully I'll be accurate. But my understanding from Julie was that uh, going back a few days ago, Julie had a conversation, and this wasn't the purpose of her call, but uh, to give you a little background on it, Julie had a conversation with somebody there that's in support of David who encouraged her to call and speak to him directly, which she did, and uh, and I'll let Julie call in and uh, and relate what it was she communicated to David if she so chooses. Uh, I, I would not feel uh, comfortable that I'd be able to do that accurately. Uh, but anyway, uh, that was an initial um, communication with David by Julie that uh, I believe uh, had some impact. In addition to that, at some point, uh, my understanding is that uh, Michael, in a year too modest to 
bring this up yourself, but uh, Michael breathed David over the telephone. Again, if, I'm under, if I understood Julie correctly. Uh, and uh, David's response to that after the fact was that he met Michael from an energetic place outside of his body. Uh, now, whether that's a real life or what's characteristically called a real, real, real death experience, I don't know. But uh, that's what David communicated. Uh, and then uh, subsequent to that, uh, this morning, uh, David uh, was able to eat some applesauce. And uh, last report was taking a shower. And uh, I don't know what all of that means, except, you know, many, many, many of us have been holding the space for him and sending love. And in our support group meeting last night, uh, at Magda's suggestion, we held the space of love for David uh, for probably a good 10 minutes. And what we did was we visualized the uh, the tumor. And uh, I suggested that we visualize it as this dark charcoal gray mass with it gradually as we send more and more love to the tumor, uh, that it lightened and lightened in color to the point where it turned white and then yellow and then orange. and. Uh, a, a bright, glowing, golden sunshine. Uh, that um, that's an exercise that I learned years ago from somebody else. But uh, sending love to that which we normally have a judgment about and negative words about, uh, most of us know is a very positive thing to do. So whatever uh, is happening with David, and of course we hold the space for it being in his highest and best interests. Uh, whatever that outcome might be. But, uh, oh, and the other uh, item is his doctor said to him, well, we'll see uh, about his uh, their recommendation that he's up to making the trip back to Louisville, Kentucky, which was his wish. And so that's what I wanted to share about David. And then uh, I also wanted to, to bring up yesterday, I, I read on the show uh, a mind shifter that I had done and uh, there was a question in it, Michael, that um, I would just like some more clarification on. And, and the question that came up for me as a result of that, I won't read the mind shifter again, but the question was, when we're in, in an interchange with somebody and we see what appears to us to be a blind spot that they have that uh, they might need to see for healing, uh, my question was, how do I know for sure that what I'm seeing uh, although I set Rachma and, and believe I'm coming from a place of love, how do I know that what I'm seeing is is accurate and appropriate for me to bring to that person as opposed to it being, uh, you know, a, a trick of my ego mind? And I'm complete. Okay. Well, uh, my input on that question would be that uh, if, if I see it, then the one thing I know for absolute sure is that that block is accurate about me. That's the only way I can see something is if I have the brain cell for it. And I can see that from one of two places. One is I've worked through it, and I have clarity, and I can hold a space of love for it. The other is I haven't worked through it, and I have some form of hostility or fear around it. And so... It is accurate always about me, may or may not be accurate about them. And 
So if I have some sort of energy around it, then before I want to bring it to anybody else's attention, I want to do my own work around it. And then the, the next thing that I've found is that if I'm going to offer someone feedback like that, I I would offer it in the form of rather than a statement of fact about them, uh, I'd offer it in the form of, well, you know, I get the sense that maybe this might be something that might be useful for you to look at, might be an issue for you, and it might not. But when I make a categorical statement that it's about them, then I can be sure that it's done with smoke and mirrors and I'm talking about myself. You know, much like the example that, uh, that Tim gave that, um, you know, Here's a, a, a number of people who are listening to this presentation last night, and they're sure that the fellow who's presenting it is on some kind of an ego trip. And uh, and then other people saying, well, no, I didn't hear him on an ego trip, but boy, when I heard Michael Rice, I've heard him on an ego trip, and, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all, it's all an inside job. So that's the best way I've found to present that kind of thing, uh, uh, Jim. And as far as the uh, the breathing session with David goes, uh, there is one slight correction to be made, and I was not on the phone with him. I was actually here in uh, in Ellington, uh, Florida, and about 7:30 yesterday morning, energetically went to support David and breathe him. And then, actually, I just got the message back from, from Susan. I talked to her just before the show. And uh, another mutual friend, Tim Parkinson, who had spent some time at Heartland when David was there. Actually, Tim was introduced to the work by David uh, from uh, when he lived in Nashville. And Tim had flown down. is down there right now with David. And uh, Tim had shared with Susan, according to Susan this morning, that I had come and breathed David, which I did do yesterday morning. I hadn't said anything to anybody about it, but uh, but that was done energetically, not physically, and not over the phone. But it was a very powerful uh, and a very sweet energy interaction. So pretty cool. Excellent. Cool. All right. Any other thoughts? Anything else to share? No, I'm complete. Awesome. All right. Well, let's check in and see if there's anybody else with a hand up in the phone queue or anything happening in the chat room. Michelle? Well, actually, yeah. Um, Julie from Oregon was on the phone with her hand up, but she had to leave, and so she texted me her question. So I'll read the text. She says it's a continuation of a conversation that maybe was started yesterday. And interestingly, though, uh, it relates to... um, our support group yesterday in Lansing, we did something a little different, um, that being um, we were talking about different ways that the worksheet has morphed with our own personal use. And one thing that Tony and Mitzi both kind of um, happened upon is expanding their worksheet like breath to do worksheets as if you're a, somebody else in the generation line. So maybe doing a worksheet from your dad's perspective or your mom's perspective. And, and yes. they both uh, explained that it just gave them deeper levels of insight. And it reminded me of Jeannie's letter where she says about writing a letter from your parents' point of view. 
So um, we took uh, turns, each of us bringing up a topic and then each of us completing the worksheet for each other. And so it reminded me kind of um, the way Ho'oponopono works in, in the sense that, like, if you're in my field and you've got an issue, then it's as much mine as yours. And there's an opportunity there to go to work on healing it. So Julie's question um, reads that um, she wanted you to continue talking about recommendations and how to best frame the four main aspects of the Ho'oponopono um, method, the aspects being I love you, I'm sorry, forgive me, and thank you. Yes. So if that sounds familiar from before. Sure. We did talk a little bit about that yesterday, and uh, and, and the first three aspects uh, of that I would offer will reach a new level of power if they're shifted into accurate language. And you know, one of the the basic principles in this work, in, in a, and I can remember, gee, it's decades ago that the movie came out. Love means you never have to say you're sorry, and I, I just never got that. Until I started to understand speech and, in particular, regulatory speech from our Laws of Living course. And when you think of the creative process, and we've been talking the last couple of days a little bit about, about on creating consciously and that we are creative beings. And Yeshua gives the key to creating uh, in a simple, powerful phrase about physics when he says this, let thine eye be single and thy body will be filled with light. Now, if you listen to the the newest understandings of physics, they will tell you that matter is frozen light energy. Singular focus to the exclusion of all other frequencies intensifies a frequency until it is expressed in the world. Let thine eye be single, thy body will be filled with light. And what most people tend to do is they tend to focus on, because of the the non-being mind and carbon-based memory running the show, tend to play the game from this perspective. I know exactly what I don't want, and I'm going to keep my eye on it to make sure it doesn't get me. And now my eye is single, and I create it. And so we hear people going around all the time saying how sorry they are. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, people who use the words I'm sorry a lot end up being sorry people. My offering is never say the phrase I'm sorry ever again to anyone, whether you're doing hopa ono or whatever you're doing. If you found yourself to be off base in your behavior, it's very appropriate to apologize. And in this case, an apology would be appropriate if, if, it, if it seems to be. You know, I apologize for any part I've played in your pain. And then the second step to that one adds in a statement of what I'm going to do in the future. So, you know, in the case where, to use an example, I've stepped on somebody's toe When I say I'm sorry for stepping on your toe, you're focused on the air, I'm focused on the air. Now the eye is single of two people. What are we going to tend to get more of? The same. As opposed to, gee, you know, 
I stepped on your toe and I apologize. And in the future, and so this is this is now brings the focus of two minds together on what we want to create rather than what we've created and we want to be done with. So then the focus would be, and in the future, I'm going to be very aware of where your feet are and make sure they're well taken care of. Now your mind and my mind are joined in what I really want to create. I think that will add a whole dimension to saying the words I'm sorry around any issue in one's life. The second step being the please forgive me. You know, the Greeks took the idea of forgiveness and turned it around 180 degrees and made it about everything that's going on in my life is somebody else's fault and I'm going to, and, and, and they are thinking that everything wrong in their lives is my fault, and therefore I'm going to ask their forgiveness, or I'm going to give them my forgiveness. We suggest with this work that you never, ever, ever ask anyone's forgiveness ever again. If you want to be pardoned for something, that is, let off the hook for something, then go for it. Ask to be pardoned. If you choose to pardon someone, to let someone off the hook because something they did in your space was inappropriate, then great, pardon them. But please, please don't make the error of calling that forgiveness because it's not. And if we call that forgiveness, then we'll never do the forgiveness work. And so that second step for me would be, rather than please forgive me, would be, you know, there's a part of me that's engaged in what's happening with you, and I choose to drop into that part of my mind and remove that. So I choose to forgive that, and I invite you to remove that energy in the same way. So rather than please forgive me, any energy that I've engaged in that has contributed to suffering or pain for you I choose to drop inside my own mind and remove that, and I invite you to do the same. If there's any energy that you hold that is of some form of hostility or fear, then I invite you to remove that. And that would be a true and proper substitute for please forgive me. And then the third one, I think we talked a little bit about yesterday, we've got this whole, you know, Vladimir Lenin says, if you want to destroy a culture, all you have to do is change the meaning of its words. And so what has happened in our culture is that we all came in exactly the same way. Anybody who holds a newborn child will use some word that is a variation on the theme of love to describe the essence of the newborn. We Do not do love. We are love. What tends to happen in our culture in particular is that we come in as love. As quickly as possible, the world knocks that experience out from under us so that we're no longer experiencing ourselves as this sweet, powerful essence of love. And then we're told that somebody loves us, that is, If we fulfill their infantile goals, then they approve of us and they call that love and that we're supposed to do the same with them. And then we're patted on the head and sent out looking for love in all the wrong places. 
kid's song a few decades ago, looking for love in too many faces, and everybody's out there looking for somebody to love them. It's a fraud. You have never loved anyone. You never will love anyone. I have never loved anyone. I never plan to love anyone. Now, do we still on occasion use the words, I love you? Yes, that's part of our culture. But in truth, if I choose to function as a human being, I am functioning as love, doing love. And so when I teach somebody that I'm loving them or they're loving me, which is what our whole culture teaches, we end up turning it backward and we tend to lose the experience of being love. So the third step there for me would be I choose to be the presence of love when I'm with you any time throughout eternity. Rather than I love you, I choose to be the presence of love. And then the completion of the project or the the process, thank you. So that would be my take on how to frame it accurately within the context of the language of our culture. I've made an error. I apologize for that. And in the future, I'm going to make sure to take care of you out of love as holy as I can. I invite you to let go of any energy you hold of hostility or fear, and I'll do the same about you if you would give me that gift. And I commit to functioning as the presence of love in your space now and forevermore. Thank you. To me, that is much more consistent with the original Ho'oponono, out of the Hawaiian culture, which I believe is one of the lost tribes of Israel. The similarities in many of the words, and in particular the forgiveness concept, and the internal dynamic of that, is right in line with the first century Aramaic. And, you know, when they talk about those those groups being scattered, they've been scattered into oblivion. Why? Because if you give people the truth about how they function, they will be saved from your insanity and the insanity of the culture. They will be freed from it. And kings don't want us to be freed. Kings need people who will murder and steal for them. That's just the way the game is. And so when we're restored to the truth of who we are, part of that restoration means that we speak accurately. Or as Vladimir Lenin said, you destroy a culture just by changing the meaning of its words. You go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago and he says the power of life and death is in our words. Why? Because words represent frequencies. Frequencies represent life or death. And the ones we engage in determine which direction we're going. So I hope that uh, that fits for your uh, your request, um, Julie. And if there's any more clarity that we can give to it, or any other questions, it would be delightful to hear back from you. Michelle, does that uh, adequately address the question from uh, your perspective? Um, I, I, it must. Um, for Julie's too, she just texted me back and said thank you. Cool. Dr. Tim, do you have any other thoughts to add to that process? I was having a thought as you were talking about how since language is so important, 
if we took some of those summary paragraphs that you were speaking or the summary paragraphs which explain the process of forgiveness in the ancient Aramaic or Shabag and helped use those to define a word in the English language and then and create a word and then use it to mean this whole paragraph of meaning and teach that, then people could use it in a shorthand format like the Ho'oponopono where they have something they can use as a mantra, they can use it in a quick format and repeatedly bring to mind all of the content of those paragraphs you were just stating. So that was my thought. It might be worth looking into. Cool. Creating a word you for know, this language, which would carry some of the meaning behind some of the words or phrases from the ancient Aramaic language, which we don't have access to. Right, right. Well, you know, if, if you look into the Enlightenment book, uh, where we published what we've decoded so far, or at least some of it, uh, from the uh, the Kavoris manuscript, there are several words which we chose to leave in Aramaic in the the context of it with a a paragraph or two, or in some cases a couple of pages of of understanding of what that word embodies in the Aramaic that that can't be said in in English or or any other language on the planet. So it's it's. Uh, that's a uh, a project to contemplate. I'll I'll certainly hold that in mind. Maybe if we uh, if we had somebody who's a really good typist, they'd take today's show and transcribe it, and we could work with it from there. So if there's anybody that there would like to volunteer, that would be awesome. And beyond volunteering, if you'd like to support this work, that would be awesome too. You can go to whyagain.org. There's a donate button. We would appreciate any support you might choose to give, especially this year with the fact that we're not traveling as we normally do, but settling in to, uh, to write and make the book available again uh, in, uh, in a printed format with the, uh, the new content. And or if you're ready to take your work to the next level, we do have two intensives that are moving in the direction of filling up. There are actually 12 spaces in each intensive. Or pardon me, eleven spaces, and uh, there'll be a uh, a nine-day codependency interdependent communication practicum that'll start on the first of February, and go through the ninth in Orlando, Florida. For those who want to get out of winter, it'll actually continue then for an additional um, seven days, so it'll become a sixteen-day intensive, and then there'll be a sixteen-day laws of living. So if you'd like to join us for that, we'd be delighted to see you. And beyond that, have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give. Blessings.